Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes. He's hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the king shouted, Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down in a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him. They brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes about sleep. I know some of you are already thinking it, so I might as well just get out of the way. There's an irony that I'm going to talk to you right now about sleep, right? Let's just admit it. Some of you are thinking about the jokes. Here's one. A preacher. Uh, some people talk in their, their own sleep. A preacher is someone who talks in other people's sleep. All right? That's just... We'll say that. Now, the reason that I want to talk to you about sleep is actually because I want you to think about your wants and the difference between your wants and your needs. You need, you know, you've read enough articles, you've seen enough news stories, you've heard your mother say it, you need a good eight hours, right, on general. Some of you need, in average, some of you need less. If you're a child, if you're a teenager, you probably need more. Uh, but the sweet spot for most people is about eight hours of sleep. And you probably have a good sense of how much sleep you need uh, in order to be productive the next day, or not, rather, to be cranky the next day. Do you get as much sleep as you actually need Probably not. And I want to ask you why. Well, uh, there were eight babies born in our church last year, so I know why 16 of you are not getting enough sleep. Some of you have ailing members, uh, family members that you're caring for. Some of you have a job that interferes with your sleep. But uh, frankly, many of you, you are not getting enough sleep because you don't want to. Or actually, I should say it another way. There are things you would rather do than sleep. There's a difference between your wants and your needs. You want to do things so you don't go to bed when you should. Uh, you're, you're having a great time at the party and you don't want to go home yet to go to bed. So you want to stay there, have a good time. Or you just want to finish one or two more chores. You just have a couple more things that you want to do. Or you want to read just one more chapter or play just one more game or just visit one more website um, or watch one more episode, you sit in your bed with your tablet or your phone or your book or your TV remote and you don't put them down and don't put your head down on your pillow. 
you want something more than sleep and you are stunningly stubborn. Why is that? Sleep is a good gift from God. Why do you fight receiving it so much? Well, your sleeping patterns, as mundane as they are, illustrate the fact that you are not very wise when it comes to assessing and pursuing what you need. Especially when what you need conflicts with something that you want. This is true in all of your life. Across the board, it's true. I bet it shows up. That, that you want things, and because you want them, you disregard your needs. Think about your diet. Is, that, is your diet driven more by your wants or your needs? Mm. Or uh, how you spend money. Mundane, very everyday, simple things. It extends across there. Uh, your wants versus your need actually uh, applies to ultimate things too. Here, here's an example. Um, Aldous Huxley was a writer and intellectual in the 20th century. He was a brilliant man. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize seven times. He wrote A Brave New World. He actually died on November 22nd, uh, 1963, within a few hours of President Kennedy and C.S. Lewis. They all died on the same day. And Aldous Huxley was a humanist. He was adamant in his humanism. When he was a young man, he was a member of an organization in Great Britain whose goal was to decrease the role of Christianity in the public sphere. And the reason why he said that was because he said Christianity is not intellectually credible. It's not rational enough. Now, when he became, uh, in his middle years, he uh, turned to Eastern mysticism, to uh, Buddhism and its related philosophies. And at the end of his life, he argued that Christianity didn't belong in the public square because it was not emotional and spiritual enough. In fact, it was too tied to the reason and logic of the Enlightenment. You're not very wise about assessing and pursuing what you need. Uh, don't be insulted by that. It's endemic to the human condition. And I bring it up this morning because we are in a passage of Scripture that can serve as a case study of that very point. Remember that the book of Saul, uh, Ryan mentioned a minute ago, the book of Saul is about how God cares for his people, how he shepherds his people through his anointed king. Ultimately, that anointed king, that great king, God's great king, is the Lord Jesus himself. But we're seeing this play out about how God gives the people the king. If God anoints his people through his anointed king, what sort of king do the people need? Or, actually more specifically, what kind of king do the people want? This chapter uh, contributes to that question by helping us understand that what the people wanted was not actually the king they needed. And if we take it out and think about how it might speak to us today, this passage is about why what you want is not what you need. Why does it work so often in my own heart that the things I want are not the things I really need? That my desires don't match up with what I need in order to live Life in the world that God has made. That's actually the question that we're going to try to answer this morning. I want to talk to you about why what you want is often not what you need. And I have three answers that come from the text. The first two try to point us in the direction of where your, need, your wants come from. The reason why what you want is often not what you need is because of where your wants come from. 
And then third, we're going to talk about this case study of the wanted king, the wanted king who's not sufficient for the people. So let's start. Why is what you want often not what you need? Here's reason number one. Because what you want is often rooted in the rejection of God. What you want is often rooted in the rejection of God. This is the theme we have talked about before. Remember when the people first came to Samuel in chapter 8 and said, we want a king. He said, you are rejecting God in this request. And he brings it up again. Did you notice that here in chapter 10, verse 17? Look what it says here. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up from Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you, but now you have rejected your God. That word rejected, it's used quite a bit in the Old Testament and it really describes the relationship that the people have with God. It's going to be Saul's downfall in a few weeks we'll find in 1 Samuel as the chapters unfold. Saul rejects God's commands and God rejects Saul as being king. When he, when he couches this in terms of, I'm the Lord of God who brought you out of Egypt, he's subtly referring to the first commandment. When you reject God, you are putting another God before God. Rejecting God means saying to God, I am not interested in what you have said, and I don't want what you have given me. There's a, a strikingly parallel passage to this in Numbers chapter 11, where this, the same word rejection is used, rejecting God. Um, the, the people are wandering in the wilderness. They haven't gone to the land yet. This is well before Saul. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they're sick of, God's giving them manna, and they're sick of it. <laughs> manna, we have to eat it all the time. I want some meat. Actually, they start to think about what it was like in, in, in uh, Egypt and how good the food was, all the leeks and onions and garlic. They mention all that stuff. And Warren Rearsby said, this is not a group of people that after eating that, you want to hear them sing, breathe on me, breath of God. <laughs> but they, they want to go back to Egypt where the food was so good. And, and look what God tells Moses to tell them. I wrote it down on that green sheet. God tells Moses this to tell them. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. Oh boy, get ready. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Think about this here. Numbers 11, they reject God because they want meat. God gives them meat, so much meat, it's coming out of their nose. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they reject God because they want a king and God's going to give them Saul. Hmm, what should we expect from Saul on the basis of that? Oof. Saul's not the first thing that God has given his people as a form of discipline. Here's this problem, this rejecting God. We don't want what God has given us. We don't want what God has said. This is a problem that is deeply rooted in human history. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. And in some ways, we're going to look at a passage that tells us this rejection of God doesn't have anything to do really with what he's given us. It has to do with the fact that it's God who's given us this, and we don't want what God wants. Let me show you that. Uh, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 11. 
It's a passage where Jesus accused the people of being childish. The Bible commends being childlike, but here he condemns them for being childish. I learned about this in a sermon that I listened to this week from uh, Tim Keller. Uh, Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Look at it. He said, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and as they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So picture it here. This is what Jesus wants you to do. Picture this. It's a lazy summer afternoon, and there's a group of children that don't have any particular responsibilities. They're going to get together, and they're going to play. And, and somebody comes up with the idea, Let's play wedding. And so they're going to pick a bride, and someone gets to be the groom, and someone gets to be the guest. This is a celebration. There's dancing and music and singing. There's going to be a pipe. And most of the kids say, hey, that sounds fun. We're going to pretend great. And then there's somebody, though, who says, I don't want to. All right? So the second game they come up with is a sad game. They're going to play funeral. That's an odd game. They didn't have chutes and ladders. They didn't have hi-ho Cheerios. So they're going to mimic their parents. Some, they're going to be uh, funeral. Someone's going to play the corpse. Someone's going to play mourners. Most of the kids are on board, but of course there's someone who says, I don't want to. This reminds me a little bit of what happens. This is not a personal testimony. But sometimes what happens when a child says, I'm hungry. So you say to them, would you like an apple? No. How about some yogurt? No. A cracker? No. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No. Some carrot sticks? No. Well, I'm not sure what else I have to offer you. I've given you several choices. I don't want any of those, but I'm hungry. How hungry can you be if you won't eat any of those, right? So Jesus drew this out, right? John the Baptist came with truth that was hard. It was granite hard truth. It was serious like a funeral. John the Baptist came and he talked about judgment and he talked about sin and he talked about repentance and people said, that's too hard. And Jesus came and he spoke about mercy and forgiveness and joy and the people said, that's too easy. And you get the idea, you get to the point very soon where you realize that the problem is not really the message and the problem is not really the messengers, it's the audience. I don't care what you offer them, they want something else because they want their own way. It doesn't matter what God offers, they want something else. They don't want funeral music, they don't want wedding music, they want to play their own tune. What's incredible in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 10 is that that Samuel points out the insanity of their choice. He reviews of them all that God has done for them. He's rescued you from Egypt. He delivered you from your oppressive neighbors. He saved you from disaster and calamities. And you want a different king. That's crazy. The first car that was mine that I drove was a 1983 LTD powder blue Crown Victoria. Uh, My dad bought it for $400 in 1995. And uh, it, it, was, it was mine to drive. 
maybe he bought it in 93. It was still old then. Um, it, it, it was mine to drive. It had a few problems. Um, the gas gauge didn't work. I found that out one day when it ran out of gas in a drive-thru. Um, <laughs> the, the back doors did not open unless you were going fast enough around a corner, and then they would fly open under those circumstances. Um, it smelled inside like the former headquarters of the tobacco lobby, and um, the muffler was hanging on. It was hanging on by a wire that was an old wire hanger that we had, and it sounded loud. It was most of the time, though, it worked, kind of. Now, if I came to you and I offered you a 2018 BMW 530i X-Drive sedan, and instead you said, you know, I really think that that 83 LTD Crown Vic would be a nice car to drive. That would be, something would be wrong with you if you said that. If you made that choice, that would be an insane choice. And that's actually what's happening here in this passage. We don't want God... We want our own song. We want our own king. If I could just address you for, for just a moment, probably some of you here this morning, you, you imagine yourself to be a very rational person. In fact, you're so rational that you recognize, you, you, if you keep Christianity at a bit of a distance, you have an interest in it, a little bit of curiosity, a passing appreciation. But, you know, there's just parts of it that seem a little strange and a little too extreme, and you're not that extreme, and you're wise. You're smarter than that. And, and, and you know, for example, when, when the Bible talks about generosity, it's just a little step too far. I mean, Jesus, he talked about treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. That's just a bit too extreme. Or, oh, let's talk about what the Bible says about human sexuality, sex between uh, one man and one woman within the context of covenant lifelong marriage, it just seems unnatural and unhealthy. It just seems, you know, we're a little smarter, a little bit more advanced than that. But if what Jesus and Samuel says about rejecting God is true, maybe it's not the fact that you're so smart that's the problem. Maybe, maybe you're being driven along by this rejection of God. You don't want a, a dirge. You don't want to pipe. You want to write your own song. Why is what you want often what you need, not what you need? Because what you want is often rooted in this base rejection of God. Now, here's the second reason why what you want is often not what you need. Because what you want is often influenced by others. It's often influenced by others more than you realize. Remember, we're talking about where your wants come from. Where do your wants come from? And I suggested to you already that your wants, sometimes they come from this basic orientation away from God. But now I want to talk to you about the fact that what you want is actually shaped in fundamental ways by the people and culture around you. Again, we're going to talk about a familiar theme here, something we've talked about. We've talked about what sort of king do the people want. They want a king like all the other nations. That appears in, in chapter 10 here with Saul's appearance. This funny scene. <laughs> so they're going through this division of, uh, they're, they're going through this lottery to determine who God wants to be king. God controls the falling of the lots. So uh, they're, they're waiting, they're, they're going through this process, and they narrow it down, narrow it down to Saul. And where's Saul? They can't find him. He's hiding 
We'll talk about this more in a minute. He's hiding with, it says, the supplies. Your translation might say the luggage. Uh, these are military supplies, military gear. Remember, they want a king to defeat their enemies, so they came armed just in case they get a king who can immediately lead them to battle. So uh, God tells them where, uh, the, where Saul is. They, they, uh, they can't find him, so they... They, if you're playing hide-and-seek so well that you need to pray about where the people you're, hide, you're seeking for, you're really good at this game, okay? This is very impressive. Um, they, they find him, verse 23, they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others, and everybody says, wow. Even Samuel, verse 24, says, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. He's just, he's tall, just like a king is supposed to look. Where did they get the idea that a king is supposed to look like this? Well, they got it from the nations around them. The Bible here is con- con- uh, confronting us again about the pressure to conform. Where do you get the idea that what you want is what you are supposed to want? You know, up to this point in the Bible, the only people who are described as tall are Israel's enemies. Goliath is really tall. When the Israelite spies go in and investigate the land, they come back and they say, they're giants in the land, they're huge, they're so tall. The only people in, in the Bible, up to this point in time, who are described as tall are the people who oppress them. They're going to get Saul. He's going to be a king just like all the other nations. And just like all the other nations, he's going to oppress them. Samuel told them this, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the new king is going to take and take and take and take and take from you. Actually, this pattern of oppression is kind of built into the text. It's interesting. We talked about this. Samuel reviews with them their history. God rescued you from Egypt. You have rejected him. And when that happens in the Old Testament, a lot what happens God rescued you from Egypt. You have rejected him. What comes next? Usually judgment. So this is what God is going to do. In this passage, uh, God rescued you. You rejected him. Not judgment, but Saul. Ooh, Saul. Hmm. When you take other people's wants and you make them your own, you will find those wants, those desires, not to be freedom-giving, not to be uh, health-producing, you will find them to be oppressive. Look at what Proverbs 11:6 says. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. Or think about the role in Ephesians 2, the cravings of our flesh. They, what role do they play? It's desires. They're part of what alienates us from God. They're contributing factors in our spiritual condition, which is dead. This is countercultural. This gives me an opportunity. I feel like I mention this a lot, but it, 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 it needs to be said often and uh, uh, more and more. Uh, God's purpose in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ is not just to change your behavior, your external behavior. He wants to change what you want, your desires. It goes all the way that deeply into your heart. He wants to change what you want. That's a countercultural message because in our culture, we are taught that the world needs to conform to your desires. 
You need to change to match what I want rather than what I want conforming to God's word. Think about how this manifests itself in the sexual revolution. I want reality or I want God. I want the Bible to change to match my desires. I'm not going to bring my desires into conformity with God's word. This is a countercultural message. God wants to change what you want. And here's one of the reasons why he wants to set you free from the oppressive nature of, of the desires of those around you who don't know Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel that oppression when you go to the grocery store? I know it's the 21st century. I see plenty of men in the grocery store. But those who publish the magazines that are in the rack at the checkout are, 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 are targeting women. And, and when you look at those magazines and those headlines that are on there, what should you want? What, according to them, should you want? You should want to be thinner. You should want to look younger. You should want to be more organized. You should want to have a more beautiful home. You should want to be sexier. You should want to follow the private lives of your favorite stars. This is all that's what's advertised there. Here you are buying the family-sized bag of double-stuffed Oreos, and in front of you is this picture of this, uh, your favorite starlet who lost all of her baby weight in three days, and Photoshop can prove it to you, all right? Here she is. That's oppressive. Think about the pressure that's on your home. The headline says, decorate your house with flea market finds, and you look at the picture and you think, what flea market in the world are they going to? Is there a secret flea market in Crate and Barrel that I don't know about that they're buying these things to put in their house? It's oppressive. If you live by what other people want, you will find their wants to oppress you. It's at least a little bit of, of what Jesus is talking about when he, when he addressed in John 8. I have come to set you free. I've come to set you free from the slavery of sin. I've come to set you free from the slavery of the, the wants of other people that are contradictory and photoshopped and not real and temporal. That's why we give ourselves over to listening to his voice, to hearing from him. This is why we give such careful attention to systematically walking through this book. We want him to shape our wants I am not trustworthy in forming my own desires, and other people around me are not much better at it either, so I need help. And we turn to what Jesus said. It's awesome. I've read this whole book, and there's nothing in here about losing your baby weight and having awesome abs. It's amazing. How would your life be different? How would your life be different if what you wanted for your life was what Jesus wants for your life? I have a suggestion for you. Maybe this would be a good practice um, for you to ask as you read the Bible or when you meet with your growth group. Read a passage of Scripture and talk about what should I want based on this passage of Scripture? What does this chapter of the Bible tell me that I should desire? It's a really good question to ask because you're not very wise when it comes to assessing and pursuing what you need. Now, here's a third reason why that's true. And we're going to come specifically to the case study of Saul. Here's an example of all these things going awry. What you want is often insufficient. What you want is often insufficient. We're going to spend some time now with Saul. 
We're going to unfold in the text here why he is not the king that the people need. We're going to think about these things for a fair amount of time this morning because we're going to spend the next few weeks, months, with Saul. And there are some of his parts of his personality that appear over and over and over again, and we want to see the damage they bring, and, and we want to learn how to fight these within ourselves. So we're going to talk about some of Saul's bedrock um, conditions. What's true about him? We're going to begin again where we started last week with Saul. First thing we're going to look at today is that Saul is spiritually dull. He's spiritually dull. Um, he looks like a king, but he doesn't have spiritual judgment. We know that because last week he didn't, he didn't know Samuel. Now we know it here because of how the people responded to him when he prophesied. Saul meets these prophets at the beginning of verses 9 and 10. And, and the Spirit comes upon him, and he starts prophesying too. And all the people who knew him, his, his elementary school teachers and his neighbors, they see him and they say, what in the world is going on with Saul? <laughs> Does Saul belong among the prophets? He didn't belong there with the prophets. Who would expect Saul to prophesy? That's crazy. They say, is Saul among the prophets? He's like a bull in a china shop. He doesn't belong there. In fact, this question becomes so um, singular here. It, it's, it's a proverb. That's what people say. Is Saul among the prophets? Uh, if you live in western New York um, and you spend money in western New York, you will undoubtedly get in your possession Canadian coins. They've come across the border and they're just used. And uh, The Canadians don't make pennies anymore. But um, when I lived there, I had routinely, I would have one or two, three Canadian pennies in my pocket. Now, Canadian pennies at the time were worth generally 75% of American pennies, but they were just floating everywhere, that, so merchants would just take them. Let's just give me the pennies, and we'll count them as pennies, and that's fine. Well, when we moved to Texas, I inadvertently took some of my Canadian pennies with me. And I tried to spend them at stores in Texas, and stores in Texas aren't used to seeing Canadian pennies. They won't take them. Is Saul among the prophets? His pennies don't belong. If you have a, a student in your class who consistently turns in subpar work, he turns in work that's covered with misspellings and run-on sentence and arguments that don't make any sense, and then all of a sudden they turn in a beautifully written essay that makes you weep for its beauty, right on the top of it is Saul among the prophets and hand it back to him, right? It just doesn't match. Something's wrong. Saul doesn't belong among the prophets. He doesn't care that much about prophecy. He doesn't care much about speaking God's truth. Why? Actually, this goes on here. Um, they mock him even more. Who's his father? Can't be Kish. Kish doesn't produce prophets. <laughs> Who's his daddy? It ain't Kish. Making fun of Saul. Based on the fact that he is so spiritually dull. And this spiritual dullness is going to hurt the people. Since we're talking about kings in the book of Israel, uh, in Israel um, we can't avoid the topic over, as the weeks go by of leadership. And I want to think for a minute with you about the issue of spiritual leadership and the role it plays in our church. Congregations, when it comes time to pick leaders, they struggle sometimes or they face the temptation sometimes to appoint men to that role uh, who are successful or who are prominent 
or who are loud or who are forceful. But the New Testament commands us to appoint men to that position whose spiritual lives are evident. And and here I have nothing but commendations for this congregation because this is something actually that our church takes very seriously. I've dealt with enough nomination committees over the years to realize how agonizing and difficult this is. We want elders uh, who through their teaching or their praying or their participation in growth groups or how they relate to their wives or children or how they relate to friends and outsiders, we want them to give evidence of the fact that Christ is their treasure. They're not perfect men, but they're spiritually growing men. That's something that's actually true in our congregation. We value that very highly. Here, they want Saul. Uh But Saul is spiritually dull. Their wants are broken. Now, what else does this passage tell us about Saul? It tells us that Saul is afraid. Saul's afraid. Fear is going to be a major theme of Saul in Saul's life. And, And you can see it here in the fact that Saul is hiding. Remember all the evidence that God has given them that Saul is the guy? Oh my God, all this evidence. He had directed their schedules sovereignly. Saul and Sammy brought them together. He'd sent the donkeys loose so Saul was out looking, excuse me. Um, all these things, all these signs, the prophets and the bread, all these signs. And then, then there's this lottery. Could God have made it any clearer that he wants Saul to be king? I, I, I find it hard to believe that he could. And then, then Saul is, in response to that, he runs and hides. They see him, long live the king. They have no idea what it's going to cost them to appoint a king who is so afraid. We're going to spend some time over the next few months talking about courage in Christian leadership and where courage in Christian leadership comes from. This is unexpected because this is not one of my personal strengths. Courage and pleasing people are often in conflict. I will tell you, it is much easier to speak hard truths behind a pulpit than it is to speak hard truths face-to-face with people. I I think I've learned the most about courage in the backwash of my own failures. Courage is an indispensable element in Christian leadership. It's an indispensable element in our fulfilling of our covenant with one another. How? How? How, brothers and sisters, will we warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as occasion may require without courage? Well, we're going to talk about that. Now, third here, related to fear, we notice that Saul is passive. He's passive. Saul's passivity is evident in his conversation with his uncle in verse 16. He doesn't say anything there about being anointed king. And after the acclamation of the people, long live the king, they all go home. And where does Saul go? He goes home too. He doesn't, doesn't form an army. He doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, get his kingdom going. He goes home. And then there's his response to these worthless men in verse uh, 27. How can this fellow save us? The text says Saul kept silent. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything about it. Why not? Why didn't he? That's awkward. It is awkward to assert yourself like this. There are points in time in all leadership positions, though, where this becomes necessary. 
sometimes as a parent, sometimes as a husband, sometimes as an elder, this assertion. I hesitate to mention this. I want to talk about this. I think it's an important part of all three of those leadership roles that I mentioned that you do this. But what, what makes me hesitant is that some of you in this room have been the victims of assertive leadership like that that has been harmful and not what God intended. You know, April, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And there are people in our congregation who have felt uh, the pain of the assertion of authority from someone who should have been caring for them, who is taking um, authority that is not theirs. They're doing what God has not authorized them to do. It's, it's, it's terrible. It is something that God does not uh, take lightly. God is the defender of the weak, the Scripture tells us. And yet, with that before us, there is an appropriate time for those in leadership to say, you know what, this is what we should do. In fact, that's what leaders sometimes do. Leaders push, even in congregations, with congregationalism. The responsibility of elders sometimes is to push. That's why Hebrews 13 says, submit to those in authority. Why? Because sometimes they're under God supposed to push. That's all. This is a case study of leadership. It's one slice of life where we see the Israelites' wants going astray. Leadership is so important that actually it's an issue that, that never passes. We can think about this whole book in terms of a case study of leadership, but it's one that you face all the time. Isn't it interesting? The Bible talks about human beings often in terms of slavery. We have masters that we set over us. Human beings, this is just the way we are. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Paul said don't offer yourselves as slaves to unrighteousness. The Bible thinks in terms of this, this leadership choice. I think about it today because uh, today is Palm Sunday. We've mentioned that a couple times. Aren't these palms beautiful up here? (laughs) We mark today Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. We mark it today. Now, the differences between the lunar calendar in ancient Palestine and the solar calendar that we use, if we want to mark the actual day, we're a couple weeks late, probably. But think about this. This is a story about the king, a king, and a people. Just like Samuel, Jesus marching into Jerusalem. It's a day about a king and a people. Jesus came fulfilling the prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Actually, that word shout that Zechariah uses is the same word that's here. The people shout, long live the king. Zechariah says, your king's coming right at you on a donkey. Shout, shout. Uh, and the people did shout. They were Galileans. They had come with Jesus. They were walking into Jerusalem together, and they shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within a week, that city would be changed. There would no longer be shouts of, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There would be instead shouts of, Crucify him, crucify him. Think about the difference that the people perceived in Jesus between the king that they wanted 
and the king that they needed. They wanted a king who would uh, uh, push the Romans into the sea. They wanted Jesus to be a warrior king who would come and punish all the unrighteous, who would come and punish all the ungodly and the proud. Oh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to someday come and do that. I'm not sure that they saw the problem, though. If Jesus comes to get rid of all the hate and sorrow and selfishness and abuse and pride and greed, that doesn't leave very many of us out, does it? If he only came to cleanse the world of those who have rejected God, what are we going to do? How are we going to stand? See, people think they need a king who is a warrior. Uh, that's what the king they wanted. They wanted the warrior. But what they needed was the Savior. They needed a Savior who has come to die for them in their place and rise again and give life to all who believe. If God shepherds his people through his anointed king, what kind of people do what kind of king do his people need? Don't trust yourself to know. You're not willing to put your cell phone down to get the sleep you need. You're going to trust yourself about this issue. <laughs> Don't trust yourself to know. Don't think that the answer will come naturally or easily. You're not that wise when it comes to assessing what you need. But Jesus has come. He's the king that we need. And celebrating that together is the task at hand for the week ahead. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are, even as we have finished thinking about King Jesus, we are grateful that he is the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is great in power he is mighty in his insight he is wise in his words of all of these things that we've we've spoken about this morning father we are grateful to you that the lord jesus is meek and lowly he's he doesn't break bruised reeds he doesn't snuff smoldering There's people in the room who feel that way this morning and thus they find great comfort in the fact that the Lord Jesus has come to shepherd. He's wise in that he indeed will punish all evil on that day when he comes. Oh, it'll be a good day. We thank you, Father, for your word that tells us how we might be uh, his people and not those in alienation from him, those who have rejected him. We're, we're thankful. Lord, we confess to you this morning that the things that we want, we confess our desires are broken. Uh, we want temporary pleasures. We want uh, the acclaim of other people. We want their applause. We want comfort. Um, we want ease. Well, those are not the things that we need. Thank you that your word corrects us. Your spirit changes us. 
we pray that you would do that work in our congregation, that we would be the sort of people who exalt in the king that you have given us because you have changed our minds and hearts so that we see that the Lord Jesus is the king that we need. Guide us this week as we think about that in a particular way, remembering his death and resurrection. It will be a great celebration next week for us. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. What good news. We pray these things, asking for your continued grace, your mercies tomorrow, which you promised. We ask these things through Jesus' name, saying, Amen.